This is the Commonwealth City Church Podcast. Thanks for listening. Commonwealth is a church in Lexington, Kentucky. For more info, visit our website at commonwealthcitychurch.com and follow us on Instagram at comcitychurch. We hope you enjoy the message. Family of CD Shepherd, a friend group. And the thing I keep hearing over and over and over again is, well, I already thought Adam was one of the elders at Commonwealth. Like, I've heard that multiple times today. But today, Adam gets to step forth in preaching and teaching from a place of shepherding us as one of our new elders here at Commonwealth City Church. So we get to introduce him and let him preach and teach from that posture today. Um, I want to let you guys in on something that we think is really important. We think that um, men pursuing the noble call of eldership is a big deal. We think it's a big deal scripturally. And we want to give, like, we want to really highlight and really focus on that. And so in, later on in September, once we have college students back, we're actually going to be having um, a service that we do, a formal laying on of hands within our community over Adam and over the ministry um, that the Lord is calling him into in light of this family. And we're waiting to do that so that we can invite more people to that and for that to be not only a marker moment for us as a church family, but even something to be pursued by future generations. We want, we want our young kids to see that. We want that to be ingrained in their lives and their hearts of, hey, this is where we're heading. This is tra- the trajectory of what it looks like. And quite frankly, one of the things we talk about all the time is in Timothy and Titus, the qualifications of eldership are not for superhumans. They're for all of us. It's where the Holy Spirit would lead all of us to pursue those things um, in obedience and in and stewarding the way that we follow Jesus. And so, Adam, I just want to thank you. I'm just grateful for your humility, um, for your shepherding. For me, I want to thank you for the way that you have just a deep desire for hearing the word of God and seeing the word of God and hearing it proclaimed. Um, and just thank you for leading us in that today. And so, um, church, this is a, many of you know Adam already as a shepherd in your life, but collectively, Uh, just to invite you to know him in that way in the life of our family. Let me pray over you as you get started today. Jesus, I just want to thank you so much uh, for my brother, um, Adam, for Ashley, for all their kids. Uh, Lord, I'm just grateful for their ministry. I'm grateful for their ministry that takes place under the roof of their home. I'm also grateful for the ministry that takes place in um, the offices that, that he works and the relationships that he's in. But I'm grateful for the ministry that you've given them, even among this faith family here at Commonwealth. And Lord, I'm just um, pray specifically just uh, over the Braun family. I pray um, that you just continue to fill and overflow them in, um, in all joy and in all peace and in all grace that's found in you. Uh, Lord, I pray that you continue to grow and give them extra measure of faith. Uh, I pray protection over their family and over their household as Adam uh, pursues and accepts uh, even a more unique call to ministry Uh, in context of this family. I pray uh, for him today as he preaches and proclaims your word, that you just give him the words to say, the strength to say it, um, and the grace and the faith to be heard from from all of us. Lord, I pray that your spirit preach that second sermon that's even more profound and more impactful than anything a a man or a woman could, could say, Lord, that your spirit actually meet us in our hearts, in our lives Lord, that you give us ears to hear, you give us eyes to see just how wonderful you are. Um, God, we're grateful for the truth in Psalm 13. I'm thankful for the way that you invite us to worship with you in this text today. And I just pray for my brother as he uh, proclaims, rightly proclaims and divides your word and your truth. It's in your name we pray. Amen.
What's up, Com City? My name is Joel. My name is Jagger. We're so excited that you came to celebrate with us this morning to celebrate who the Lord is and what He's done for us. Uh, so now as we transition into a time of worshiping the Lord through hearing His Word, uh, would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word this morning uh, and turn your Bibles to Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel of my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, thank you so much for how you love us and care for us. Lord, thank you that you don't um, wait forever, uh, but Lord, you answer the righteous. You hear their cry. Uh, and Lord, I pray that you would hear us when we call out to you, uh, that we would worship you for who you are and for what you've done. So would you teach us now through your word? I pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Good morning, church. Well, I was talking with uh, our friend the other day, uh, Zach Meerkreeps. Many of you know Zach. He's a pastor in town at First Alliance Church. And um, Zach and his wife, KP, uh, have gone through a lot of hardship in the last year, um, as many of you know. They had a daughter, Esther Joy, who was born in December and lived 12 hours. And it has been incredibly hard and difficult season for them. And so please continue to keep them in your prayers. But we were just lamenting this together just, just a few days ago when he said something really profound to me. And it just testifies to what the Lord's doing in him and in his wife in this season. He said, you know, because of the reality of sin, this world is broken. And it's not as it should be in a way. But because of the grace of God, it won't always be this way. And so with that, I have one overarching goal today as we talk about Psalm 13, and it's your endurance and patience with joy. Endurance because the world is broken. Patience because it won't be that way forever. And joy because it's the fuel for them both. So our text today, as uh, Jagger read, is a lament psalm, which I would define as poetic sorrow over the broken world. And there's dozens of them in the book of Psalms. 150 Psalms, there's probably over 50 laments, depending on how you classify them. So this shows that lament is weaved through, brokenness and rawness is weaved through the pages of our Bible as kind of a testament to reality of what we feel. Now, Psalm 13 in particular is a lament of deep darkness, deep darkness, one that I'm going to call I'm going to use a metaphor. I'm going to hereafter call it being in the pit, okay? Being in the pit. Now, I'm not talking about the pit as if it were uh, a literal grave, but only that place of the soul that's a deep darkness that feels like the grave, okay? And one that, that maybe we're not sure we will ever recover. In this way, Psalm 13 really is representative of some of the hardest suffering that we may ever feel or face. 
And because of that, what we learn from it is applicable to all of us, no matter what suffering we face in this life, because we will all suffer. Now, I expect there's a large number of you in the room who have never been in this pit, um, especially with how many young people we have. Um, that was me three years ago. I mean, I was sitting out there and I had never been in. I could read the words of Psalm 13 and think, wow, that sounds hard. Um, but, uh, you know, in God's mercy at the beginning of 2019, I was led into a season of darkness that was like no other thing I'd ever experienced. And it was the hardest many months of my life. But what God did in me in that season um, and how tenderly he cared for me and brought me through it has left me feeling grateful and I would never undo it. And so I hope to weave that into today. Um, I expect in a group of this size, there may actually be a couple of you who are in the pit now. And, and I have been praying for you that this day and that the words of God's uh, scripture would be strengthening to your hand. So my plan, Lord willing, is to um, make three observations from Psalm 13 about the pit and then a closing exhortation to us all, okay? So let, let's pray together and ask the Lord's favor. Oh Lord, hallowed be your name. Lord, that this people will know that you are God who lives and who reigns and who saves, that they would know that their Lord is a faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love to thousands of generations who fear him. Lord, I'm reminded that those who sow in tears of sorrow will reap with shouts of joy. So come and strengthen our hands and help us. I'm so desperate for you to move. Please remove from me all eloquence and worldly wisdom and speak powerfully through me, through your spirit, that many will be saved and that the rest will be strengthened. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so observation number one about the pit is the pit is indescribably dark. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? I was rather naive about this type of situation a few years ago. Um, I had no clue what it felt like. Um, but I was actually somewhat judgmental of seeing people in their deep darkness, to, to confess that to you. I just considered that maybe there, there wasn't enough trust or faith in them in, in my mind. And that was foolish of me and, and very prideful. So I just confess it as, as asking forgiveness from you. Um, having said that, there are some things for which words just fail to really capture reality. And we all know this, right? There's things like seeing an amazing sunrise or uh, hearing your newborn daughter giggle or, you know, uh, just other things like seeing your bride walk down the aisle that you just can't, words couldn't describe what you felt. And unfortunately, the, I found out firsthand that the darkness in the pit is one of those things. In this pit, notice in our text that David feels forgotten by God. He feels hidden from by God. He feels alone 
He feels perpetually downcast and he feels oppressed by his enemies. I say forgotten because he says, will you forget me forever? Now, there are a lot of people who probably feel that way, that they're forgotten by God in their circumstances. But as he goes on, you see that these are stepping stones that just build one on top of the other, on top of the other, as if it was a path leading straight into the grave, as we will see. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? I take David to say here, I'm alone. I'm counseling myself and I have sorrow all day long because of it. So note that regardless of if these things are true, we were praying before and and Brady Casper was praying and just calling out the fact that God does not forget any of us. He does not forget any of us. The omniscient God will surely not forget us. So even though some of these things may or may not be true, David believed them as true because they were reality to him, right? And so I can identify with all of these emotions that David expressed through my season, The loneliness alone was baffling. I would be in a room full of people and feel utterly desolate. I would wake up in the middle of the night and see my wife laying next to me and feel all alone. The pit is very dark indeed. So, but why do I point this out? I point this out because I have three reasons. And first, I want to talk to what I'll just lovingly call the sunshine saints, you who are just in the sunshine, you're not in the pit right now, I want to challenge you and encourage you this week to be praying about if there's someone in your life that God has placed in your life who is in the pit currently, that you can sit and listen to, that you can pray with and and share Jesus and share his promises with them. It's very dark down there. And who knows whether the light that God has given you might light up their darkness and be a strength to them. I recall I was uh, reading Pilgrim's Progress with my kids last night, or at least the kids' version. And remember, anybody Pilgrim's Progress people, anybody read? Man, a lot of you. Good. So like in the beginning of the story, Christian is, is on his way because he fears the weight of the burden on his back and the proclamation of judgment on the world and destruction. And he falls into this swamp that's called the slough of despond or the slough of despond. And while he's there, despond just is an old English term to describe just being very downcast, very downcast. And the one who helped him out was help. He came and helped him out through the promises of God. And that's what I would encourage you all to consider doing. I um, remember our commands to encourage the brokenhearted in 1 Thessalonians 5.14 and to bear one another's burdens in Galatians 6.2. Now, for those of you who may be actively crushed in spirit, I talk about the darkness of the pit first to dispel this notion that is altogether a different type of loneliness, one that feels like you're the only one who's ever experienced it. That really hit me hard. I just felt like nobody else had had this or should have this. And I want to dispel that. But I also want to address those of you in the pit and the rest of us as tenderly and as lovingly as I can with biblical truth. Because at first it may seem hard, but I believe the truth will set us free. 
The first biblical truth I want to shine on the darkness is that God is in control and he is working. Hosea 6.1 says, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down that he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will raise us up that we will live before him. You see, God's purposes are ever wise, always loving to his blood-bought people. And his purpose is your life. Secondly, God does not afflict you from his heart. Lamentations 3, 31 through 33. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of man. This means that in every trial, he's not, even though God is in control, he is not afflicting because it feels good to him as if he's some sort of capricious, you know, flicking us left and right. He is lovingly, tenderly calling us to something greater. The third thing is, God means for us to learn something in our affliction, to grow in holiness. And to this, I point to Psalm 119, verses 67 and then 71. The psalmist says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. And last, your suffering will soon drown in a sea of joy and glory. Romans 8.18 says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time aren't worth Comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us and to us. And 2 Corinthians 4, 17 says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. What is coming is a sea of glory and joy that will drown out even the memory of our hardest days. And so we take hope. Observation number one, the pit is indescribably dark. Next, observation number two, the pit outlasts all natural abilities and worldly refuges. How long comes David's fourfold cry in the first two verses, declaring unmistakably that there is no gas left in his tank? There is none. And then in verse three, David says, consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. It's important to point out, I think, that in our self-confidence, there is a folly that happens when trials come on. There's this sense of initially feeling like this, I got this kind of a thing. It's typical human nature to feel inherently well-equipped to handle trials. I, I certainly did in my own trial. Uh, the first few months of it, I was using all this medical knowledge that, that I'd been able to accrue to kind of answer the question of what's going on and how can it be fixed. And, but I ask you in Psalm 13, where is David here in the, at the bottom of the pit? He's not scrambling in his own strength to find an answer. He is at the end of his rope. He's essentially crying out, I'm going to die, Lord, if you don't do something. 
The pit is designed to exhaust all natural abilities and worldly refuges until self-confidence turns into God-confidence. And which is better? I point to an example in the New Testament of this that shows it pretty clearly. It's Paul in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8 and 9. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on who? On God who raises the dead. Observation number two is the pit outlasts all natural abilities and worldly refuges. The third observation from Psalm 13 that I see is the pit raises your spiritual DEFCON level. Now, I I used to be a a big fan when I was a kid of these uh, Tom Clancy novels. Anybody know Tom Clancy and some of these military? Man, I love love those and, and the movies too. There's always like some moment where, you know, all calamity is about to break and like the president raises the DEFCON level. And so if you're not aware, in our country, there's a military preparedness level and it goes from one to five. And so five is like the least prepared. It's just like everybody go take a nap. And then every stage above that, four to three to two to one is just like an escalating level of preparedness and readiness. And so my point here is that I'm seeing that the pit raises the spiritual DEFCON level. And I'll show you where I get that. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. So what is it with all this talk about enemies? If you read through the laments in the Bible, almost all of them talk about enemies. And and I just ask the question, why is it laden with that? I think the answer is because we are at war, church. We are at war. The pages of the Bible clearly portray that. And this war is of massive consequence. The prize that's being fought for are your souls and the souls of all the people you love. I'm reminded by uh, Paul in Ephesians 6 where he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There's something to be said about the ability of a fiery trial to awaken us to the reality of war. It's as if we were thrust into the pit and in the darkness and kind of the disorientation, we look up and we see sneering faces content to see us there. And just who are those faces to us? Because David had real enemies, right? Like he had Absalom, his son, who hunted him down, and he had Saul who was after him. And this is a picture for us today so that we can see it, but also understand that we too have enemies so that this psalm applies to us in a very real way. This next point deserves probably its own sermon or two, but I see two main enemies in the New Testament that I want to just outline for you. And the first is Satan, the devil. 
1 Peter 5.8 describes Satan as a roaring lion prowling around seeking someone to devour. He is undeniably powerful and he hates all of you. We are to resist him by the power of the Holy Spirit, 1 Peter 5.9. We resist him through the graces of prayer, through the power of his word, and through spiritual armor that he clothes us with. The next enemy that the New Testament really paints for us is the enemy of our own indwelling flesh. These are little bits and pieces of our old self that wage war against our new self and the spirit that's in us. And so multiple times, Paul especially really just drives the nail into us just to spur us on. He says, he says if you by the spirit put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live, right? So he's saying, by the Spirit, not in your own strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, if you do this, here's a promise, you will live. So we see that by Holy Spirit empowerment, that is what we will do. In Colossians 3, 5, after Paul lays out all of these truths about if you have been uh, raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So, those are, again, I would, we could go on for a long time about those, and I think we'll save them for another time. But I would just point out that, sadly, our generation of Christians may be amongst the most aloof wartime Christians ever. Um, I certainly was before my, my dark season. I, I, I had not uh, paid a mind to any of it. And I think there's two reasons for that. Uh, the first is the battlefield that we find ourselves in is a, a, a Disneyland of sorts called America. And it's rife with distractions and trifles and endless entertainments. And the, the second reason is, is that ubiquitous, this material prosperity that we all swim in preaches a message of peace, peace, when there is no peace. All of this serves to numb the mind, to dull the heart, and to soften, weaken the taste buds of the heart to feel and taste and see and love great, deep spiritual things about God and to be on guard against the enemies of our soul. I'm reminded of a, a story I read um, by a guy named John Bloom. It's also in um, Sheep Among Wolves, I think, this story, where an Iranian pastor and his wife um, so there are pastors, Christian pastors of um, kind of like small house church type movement in Iran. They moved over to the States for a little while. And um, while they were here, actually the wife of the couple begged the husband to go back to Iran from the States. And the reason she gave was she said, it's like there's this satanic lullaby being sung all over the American Christians and they're lulled to sleep. Please, I just want to go back. So, regarding this, I would give kind of a couple minor encouragements here. For saints living in the sunshine, what are we to do? I beg of you to fight to stay awake and take seriously the nature of the war that we actually find ourselves in and the biblical realities about it. For those of you who may be in the pit, I have no preconceived notions that you have all your full faculties to fight, okay? So what I would encourage you with is do what David did. He cried out for God's mercy. He cried out for help. 
and be aware of the very real nature of spiritual oppression and spiritual warfare. Um, Butch actually in my season was the one who most strongly encouraged me in that. And like, as I started praying and realizing the enemies kind of digging into me, things really started changing as God's power started to become manifest through prayer. So observation number three, the spirit raises your spiritual DEFCON level. And so I close by reading out the, the next couple verses. And, you know, this is the, the most important thing to learn from David's foray in the pit is how he got out, right? We've talked about a lot of heavy things and I realized that, but I, it seemed good to me because I felt like it was necessary since I didn't know three years ago what it was like. And so I think what we learn in these next couple verses lies the key not only to battling despair, but the key to all of Christian living. So David, in the depth of his despair, says, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So what happened? I mean, what happened? He's on the verge of death. And now he's singing, he's rejoicing. What happened? With one, fe- one sweeping statement, David finds a groundswell of hope to lift his sinking ship and we must see what happened. So this is my closing exhortation to you. Turn from your circumstances to treasure the God of Hesed, and joyful hope will rise. I wanna show you what I mean by that. Verse five and six, just again. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. With those two words, but I, David essentially forsakes all the circumstances and all the feelings he had had in verses one through four. He turns his back on them for the, for the joy and the, the, the strong, mighty anchor that lay before him in the sentence that he, that he kind of outlines later. And how many dire circumstances in God's word are turned around by those words, but I, or but God. I'm reminded of Psalm 73, 26, which says, um, my flesh and my heart may fail. Oh, that's such a weight. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The whole world turns on, but God. So let us pray, church, for the courage and the discernment to be able to say these words, but God, in times of calamity and in times of prosperity, because our circumstances lie to us. To those of us in times of darkness, our circumstances shout, all is lost. But they lie because they do not have reference to the Father whose arm is surely not shortened to help us. In times of prosperity, they whisper, these rays of sunshine are your peace. But they ignore that Jesus is our peace, tearing down the dividing wall of hostility between us and God. And so it is not the the sunny rays and the good things that we have that are our peace. It is Christ alone. So he 
forsakes his circumstances, and he turns to treasure the God of Hesed. Well, what do I mean by that? Hesed is the Hebrew word here for steadfast love. And nearly every time it references God, it could take your breath away. It's, it's almost 200 times in the Old Testament. And I say treasure the God of Hesed because I propose here that David does not merely mean that he beholds the actions of God and treasures them or trusts in them apart from trusting in God also. Does that make sense? I'll paint it with an analogy. If somebody shows up on your doorstep and hands you your wallet that you left at the store, because they found your driver's license, they hand it to you, you don't, you trust in the person who did that, right? You see through the action to behold the person and that builds your trust in him. Not, you don't merely trust in the action itself. And so I say our task every day is to behold the actions of God's steadfast love and pray, ask for the gift of sight to see through them to the God who did them that he would be the treasure of our hearts. By God's steadfast love in the Bible, he snatched up lingering Lot while Sodom was about to burn from the ground. When has God snatched you from a flaming fire? Cherish him with me. By God's steadfast love, he showed favor to Joseph, though he was wrongly imprisoned, and gave him such favor with the, with the prisoners and gave him such hope to endure. When has God shown you favor in the midst of your affliction? Cherish him with me. By God's steadfast love, he created the heavens and the earth. Psalm 136 talks about all of God's creation. And at the end of each verse, it says, for his steadfast love endures forever. When has God's creation made your jaw drop, church? Cherish him with me. I could go on. See that God's steadfast love fills the earth, Psalm 33, 5 said. It reaches to the heavens, Psalm 36. It never ceases, Lamentations 3. It will satisfy you every morning, Psalm 90. Indeed, it is better than life itself, Psalm 63, 3. If God's steadfast love is Mount Everest, we haven't even reached the base, we haven't even left base camp yet. Because what about Christ, church, right? Behold Christ, the eternally existent one who put on flesh, and humbled himself. Behold Christ who performed miracles and worked wonders to show that all things were created through him and for him. Behold Christ who willingly chose Judas, knowing he would be betrayed for a measly 30 pieces of silver. Christ who agonized in the garden, knowing that the most awful suffering was about to come and said, not my will, Father, but yours be done. Christ who was slapped and spit on and scourged, though he had never done anything wrong. Christ who went like a lamb to the slaughter, carrying his own tortured tool of death and enduring the most horrific suffering of anyone ever, drinking every drop of God's just wrath on sin, that all who treasure him would be forgiven. Behold Jesus, raised by the Father because the cords of death could not hold him. And after beholding all of this and seeing through it to the God of steadfast love, know that, dear friends, that Jesus 
endured this, walked this impossible road, that no suffering of ours would be condemnation. It's not condemnation. But rather, it would serve our ultimate good in the end. One day, we will look back and we will know more of what God has done. So I say, turn from your circumstances. Treasure the God of Hesed and joyful hope will rise. I can't encourage you enough to make it every day your aim, church, to behold the God of Hesed and treasure him. Because then you see his trustworthiness, his goodness, his mercy, his sovereignty, his power. And all of a sudden, all of his promises become like a ballast of hope that lifts up your boat every day. His promise is to rejoice in always doing good for you, Jeremiah 32, 41. His promise that uh, goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life, that he will never leave you nor forsake you, that surely my God will provide all your needs through his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. These become full ballast of assurance for us. So I'd like for us to consider these things and enter a time of response to what God's word has shown. Um, I invite you to come and pray at the front um, to receive communion if you are a, one who treasures Jesus. Um, if you're here and a lot of this seems strange and unknown, but you feel a yearning in you, I beg of you to come Come without thought of being good enough because none of us ever were or ever will be. Come and turn from your past life of sin and guilt and receive forgiveness at the foot of the cross. All who trust in the name of the Lord will be forgiven. So come. Let's pray. Father, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Oh, how I pray that the weight of the lot of this would just hit us and that it would go with us and that the truth of it would endure and strengthen our hands and our hearts. Please, Lord, magnify your name now in this moment. Raise our hearts with joyful praise, creating us an eagerness and a longing to know you. Let us Press on to know the Lord. He has raised us up. Magnify your name now, Jesus.